Amen. Thank you, friends. Thank you, Elena and Jake, for leading us this morning. Yes. Appreciate you guys. How's everybody doing today? That was terrible. How is everyone doing on this glorious day the Lord has given you? That's, that's better. You can't live in Tahoe and be like, it's fine here. I'm fine. You know, this is, this is the joy of the Lord given to us as a gift. So don't want to miss it. Hey, if you don't know me, uh, my name is Brandon McCaughey. I'm the lead pastor here at Cornerstone Community Church. And I just want to say how thankful I am for this church family. I look around and I just see uh, so many servants and people who just, I love you guys. Thank you. And if you don't know me and we're, you know, you're, you're a summer folk, we, we love you. And we're glad you're here. So come get to know me. Uh, meet me in the lobby afterwards. We can exchange numbers and get to know each other. And uh, we're here to serve you. And, and, and one of the ways we want to serve our church is by praying for you. Can I tell you, prayer is the most significant ministry that this church does. Amen? Amen. So... If you would like prayer, it's real easy. All you have to do is email prayer. You got to remember this. This is real hard. Prayer at cornerstonecommunity.net. Send your prayer requests. We will faithfully pray over those uh, all week. And so we, we, I put them in a little folder in my email and I go over those each day and I pray over those things. And so we don't want to have you miss out on that opportunity to be able to just lift these things up before the Lord. If you don't want to email, there is a connection card in the seat backs in front of you. You can put your prayer requests on there and drop them in the offering boxes uh, there at the double doors before you leave. And again, we will pray for those things. And, and yeah, I love doing that. I love praying for you guys by name and uh, just spending that time uh, with the Lord on your behalf. So, well, we are in our last sermon in the book of Titus. So hopefully you've enjoyed this uh, seven-week series. And today uh, we are in Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. So open your Bibles with me, Titus chapter 3. If you got out of the house without your Bible, you need a copy, uh, just put your hand up and one of our ushers will bring you a copy of God's Word. And we want you to, to be in God's Word because that's, that's why we're here. So in his letter to Titus, Paul has been addressing two issues within the context of the local congregation on this Greek island of Crete. You see, the believers in these churches were conforming to the immorality of the culture around them. They were being led astray by false teachers who were teaching things that contradicted the truth of the word of God. And Paul has been constantly urging Titus to exhort these believers to live lives that adorn the doctrine of God, their Savior. Living lives that adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Have you ever thought about your Christian life in this way? That the work that you do, the, the faithfulness that you have to the Lord, adorns the doctrine of his truth. It proclaims to the world that who he is and what he came to do is in fact true. See, in other words, it's essential for us as Christians to hold to right doctrine, right beliefs, 
so that we are able to live holy lives in response to all that God has offered us in Christ Jesus. Now here in these last seven verses of this letter, Paul addresses several different topics. In verses 9 through 11, Paul is going to tell Titus how to respond to divisive people within the church. Then in verses 12 through 14, he's going to tell us about pastoral care, growing in maturity, and the constant need for that in the Christian life. And then finally in verse 15, Paul is going to remind us of the importance of Christian fellowship and the essential nature of the grace of God in every area of the Christian life. So with that in mind, let me ask you to stand together. Uh, we like to honor God's word and read it uh, as one body, as one voice. So the words will be up on the screen for you. And we will read these words from Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 15 together. Paul says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, having nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let's pray together. Father God, we praise you for being holy, holy, holy. A God who is so perfect and pure that sin cannot even be in your presence. Which creates a problem for us sinful people. And yet you gave us Jesus. And so for today for that gift, we just want to say thank you. And we want to thank you for the gift of your word, how it teaches us and molds us in the image of Christ. And it shows us how to live holy lives that you might be glorified in this world. So teach us this morning, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. Show us what you have for us and mold us and make us into the image of your son. We ask this all in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church. Y'all may be seated. If you didn't know, I lived in Texas for a long time, about four years. And when you say y'all, you just can't not say it. It's just too delightful. So if you want to start practicing y'alls with your friends, you'll, you'll realize very quickly you just can't stop. There's just, you know, it's a delight. So in verses 9 through 11, Paul encourages the church to avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, having nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Now, Paul writes something similar 
to Timothy, who was pastoring at this time in Ephesus. He was having a similar problem with false teachers within the church. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, he writes this. He says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, in both of these passages, Paul is telling these pastors to avoid people who foster division, disunity, and strife within the church. The folks who, who are concerned with arguments about silly things, right, just for the sake of argument. We, we've all done this, but this is a, a habit of some folks. And it means that we as Christians must learn to distinguish when it is useful to have a discussion with someone, maybe even an argument, with a contentious person, and when it's just pointless and fruitless to do so, right? You've had those conversations about faith and practice where you're just banging your head up against the wall. This is what we're talking about. Right? Now, this means that you and I need to understand what is essential to the faith. What are the essential doctrines of the faith that we should contend for? Because certainly there are things that we should allow to just, you know, be taught that are, that are untrue. So what are these essentials? I'm going to give you a nice long list. Things like God is glorious. We are sinners. Jesus Christ is our Savior and God. Jesus Christ is the Son of God and God made flesh. Who died and rose again, who ascended into heaven, who is coming again to set all things right. Salvation is because of God's sovereign grace, according to the converting power of the Holy Spirit through faith, not according to works. The scriptures are wholly inspired and true. Jesus Christ saves us from sin, saves us to eternal life, and saves us to live lives of holiness. You see, these doctrines are absolutely primary, essential to the faith, foundational to everything we believe as Christians. Now, there was something in that list that you were like, wait, what? Come talk to me and, and we'll straighten you out on that. It's fine. Those things are the truths of Scripture just laid out in a list. And we should stand firm on those truths, on these biblical truths without compromise. We should be willing to fight for those truths. And the church, according to Paul, the church should not put up with people who blatantly denounce these kinds of beliefs. If somebody says Jesus Christ was not really a man, he was some kind of spirit being, no. We know scripture teaches he was 100% God, 100% man. And if you're teaching something other than that, Paul is saying, avoid those people. They're causing trouble, division, strife within the church because of what they're teaching. Now, we must also understand on the flip side that there are some matters where we are allowed to have a difference of opinion, beliefs that we should hold on to out of our own personal preference, 
that should never cause division amongst us. And if it does, shame on us. And frankly, denominationalism as a whole has been one of our greatest shames in the church. Because we divided over some really silly things. Now, some were probably warranted, just to be clear. But over, over, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of Christian denominations. And you get down to the nitty-gritty and, well, what are we different on? What are we saying differently? Like, nothing of importance. I'm going to give you some examples of these things. Because sometimes we, we get caught up in some of these things and make them primary. When really what they are is secondary. Things like your end times views. Now, Jesus is coming back. That is an end times view. We already said that one. But that's where it stops from there, right? You don't get to pick all the details from there. That's just straight Jesus is coming back. So all the other nuances, that's your opinion. Great. The mode of baptism. The age of the earth. Some of you old and new earth folks, you can get along. It's fine. Should give each other a hug after service. <laughs> what day you observe the Sabbath? I observe it on Friday because I work on Sunday. Just be clear. Your worship preferences. Oh, this is a big one. Right? What songs we sing. I like hymns. I like contemporary. I like it this volume. I like it that volume. I like it this tempo. I like it that tempo. I like it to be at the beginning. I like it to be at the end. Good night, people. Now, you're real. I've been a pastor for like 18 years at this point, so I've heard all of it ad nauseum. These are just your preference. It's your preference. Yes, truly ad nauseum. That's a great word, by the way. What translation of the Bible you use? Now, you King James folks, more power to you. Have at it. I don't get it, but if that's your deal, have a good time. It's fine. Or the form of church leadership that you prefer. I like bishops. I like elders. Well, you know, those words in the Greek are the same word, right? So we're just arguing about the same thing. Or the other big one, the function of the spiritual gifts within the church. Right? All you Pentecostal folks, we love you. It's fine. You pray in tongues, have at it. Or if you believe that you have to get the prophecy, great. Like, use that for the glory of the Lord. We can differ on our understanding of all those things. And we should never divide because of them. And if you're willing to divide on those non-essential topics, you're in sin. Brother, sister, that's shame on you. We are called to be the body of Christ. Which means there is only one body. Doesn't matter what part of it you belong to. Right? We might be the belly button of Christ. I don't know. <laughs> it's the most ridiculous part I could figure. But, <laughs> but when a believer tries to impose their views on other believers and they call it orthodoxy or right belief and it's a secondary issue, we must remember what Paul is telling Titus here in verses 10 and 11. He says, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once... And then twice, so you get two warnings, three strikes, you're out. He says, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. 
You see, God doesn't tolerate division in the church. He just doesn't. There is no reason for us to act like it's my way or the highway on these non-essential issues. We should be gracious and loving to one another knowing that some of us have believed some crazy things in our time. How many of you have been orthodox in your beliefs your entire life? I'm not raising my hand, by the way. I'm just, just you know. Of course, none of us. Because you look back at your, at your young Christian self and you realize, what a fool I was. I read that scripture and I took it way out of context. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yes, that's not what that means. It doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. You can't jump off a cliff because Jesus gives you the strength. But we hold to some of these things and we think like this is the end all. And then we say to our brothers and sisters in Christ, I can't have fellowship with you because of what you believe. And unless it's an essential core doctrinal belief, we should be gracious to one another in these things. Amen? Oh, it's interesting if you look at Titus 3, 10 through 11, because what Paul is doing is he's applying Jesus' teaching of church discipline in Matthew 18, 15 to 20. You could bookmark that if you want to read that later. He's applying Jesus' idea of church just discipline to this particular issue. For he says, first, you warn the divisive person. Second, you warn him again. So it's not a one and done, oh, hey, I said something foolish and now I'm out. You get three times. He says, after that, you move on and you have nothing to do with them. Now, there does come a time when someone who is being divisive, who is stirring up strife within the church, needs to be removed from that fellowship for their sake. And now you might be thinking, well, what's the deal with that? Now, it doesn't mean that we don't love that person. In fact, parents, you discipline your child because you love them. If you're disciplining them for any other reason, by the way, it's probably your sin. If you're disciplining them out of love and honor for the Lord, then good. Every form of church discipline should be done with the goal of restoration and renewal for that person out of love. Every single time somebody in the church makes a mistake that needs elders or leaders to step in and correct, that correction should come with, come back into the fellowship. Come back into the body of Christ. See the love of Jesus and be restored. It is done because we love you, not because we're punishing you. In fact, Alexander Strauch reminds us this. He says, love is not just happy smiles or pleasant words. If you've been married, you know that's true. A critical test of genuine love is whether we are willing to confront and discipline those we care for. Nothing is more difficult than disciplining a brother or sister in Christ who is trapped in sin. It is always agonizing work, messy, complicated, often unsuccessful, emotionally exhausting, and potentially divisive. This is why most church leaders avoid discipline at all costs. But that is not love. 
It is a lack of courage and disobedience to the Lord Jesus Christ who himself laid down instructions for the discipline of an unrepentant believer. There's a reason Jesus gave us several verses on what church discipline should look like. Because he expects us to do it when it's necessary for the sake of restoring a brother or sister who's in error to truth. And if you've picked up anything from the, this series through Titus, it's how important right belief and right doctrine are. Now, Paul's been warning Titus here about being sucked into these pointless and foolish arguments where believers might squabble over endlessly ridiculous things, all the while forgetting the truth and the core of the gospel. The grace and love and charity then just fly right out the window. We must always keep the main thing the main thing. Well, if you want to fight with each other over the infallibility of Scripture, great, you should do that. It is infallible. It is God's word. But if you want to fight over what end times belief is correct, because you're pre-millennial or post-millennial or all, all the millennials, how silly. How silly to divide over something that isn't as essential as the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let us debate our core beliefs with passion and care a whole lot less about the rest. Amen? We all have things we care far too much about, our, our little soapboxes, issues with little eternal significance. In Paul's day, he lists them out for us. He says the, the, the issues were genealogies, these man-made laws, these superstitions, and they were giving credence to those in the church and putting them on the same level as the gospel. If you want to be a follower of Jesus in Paul's day, you have to believe the gospel, but you also have to believe these man-made myths, these, this idea of your genealogy somehow shows who you are in Christ, right? How silly. Now today, it's politics, personal preferences, and public opinion. And we divide over things we have no business dividing over. You political folks out there, if you're a Republican or a Democrat, that's not your God or Savior. They're just men, and frankly, not always the best kind of men and women. They're sinful people who are broken, who need the truth of the gospel just as much as you or I. Never put your faith and your trust in them, or any other person for that matter. We must be careful not to get caught up into these secondary things, especially if they cause us to break fellowship with one another. Do you have bitterness in your heart towards someone in the church because of a disagreement you had? If you do, today's the day. Make it right before you leave this building. And maybe you need to make a phone call when you get home or send an email. Right relationships are the key to the Christian faith. And, and if we're unwilling to forgive one another for the foolish things we say and do, then we're, we're neglecting the forgiveness Jesus Christ has offered us through the gospel. Amen? Now let's look at verses 12 through 14. I'm going to move away from that soapbox now. And if you want to hash it out with me later, I love you. And yeah, it would be great. 
But let's look at verses 12 through 14 because Paul closes his letter by letting Titus know how greatly he wants to see him. He says, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. He's, he's like some of us. He goes, you guys didn't get it. Yeah. <laughs> some of you snowbirds got it. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good work so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Now Paul is telling Titus, get all the business in order. And then Artemis or Tychicus is going to come to Crete and replace you. And then you can come and join me in Nicopolis in the winter. Right, so he's giving Titus a time frame. Now, Nicopolis is a city on the western coast of Greece. And Paul tells Titus to do his best to come there as quickly as possible. Get everything in order. And then when it's all set, these guys are going to take over for you and your job is done. Move forward. And he also tells Titus to send Zenus the lawyer and Apollo who most likely were the guys who delivered this letter to Titus. They were the ones who hand-carried it to Titus on Crete. And he says, make sure that they are sent on their way to accomplish their next task. Make sure they were well supplied for their journey. He doesn't just say, hey, send them on their way. Thanks for the letter. He says, stock them up so that when they head out, they have all that they need to do the next task on the list. This reminds us that partnerships in the gospel are essential for healthy ministry. Paul depended upon his friends both physically and spiritually and emotionally. And God has given each one of us not just the local fellowship but the big C church, the greater body of Christ as a resource in carrying out the great commission together. And you and I should seek those kinds of partnerships with other believers and ministries that have that same goal. Now, on a side note, have you ever heard of Zenus or Artemis? Now, now, I'm not talking about like, a, yeah, I just read those. But before that, have you ever heard of these two guys? Do you know whether it was Artemis or Tychicus who replaces Titus on Crete? Do you know the final destination or the task Paul gave to Zenus and Apollos as they passed on from Crete? Do you know what Paul and Titus did in Nicopolis during the winter of AD 65? I, I don't know the answers to these, by the way, just so you know. <laughs> now, we do know from 2 Timothy 4.10 that just before Paul was executed in Rome, Titus was building the kingdom of God in a town called Dalmatia located just north of the town of Nicopolis. So we do know, most likely, that Titus left Crete, was in Nicopolis with Paul, and then went north to Dalmatia and was planting churches there. We do know that. However, as we look at these verses, as we hear these names, we realize we know little or nothing of the people and places and activities these guys were doing, these, these ministers were, were part of. We have a few highlights of Paul's life. We have the book of Acts, we have the letters he wrote. But other than that, we know very little about a guy who had a 30-year ministry career. 30 years. 
We know almost nothing about what Paul did day in and day out. We don't know the conversations he had, the work he did. We know some of his struggles. We know, you know, he got shipwrecked a lot. He was good at that. And he was good at planting churches. We know that. But there's an important lesson for us in all of this. And I think that lesson is that none of us should serve Christ for recognition. To be known or remembered in this world. Your job as a faithful minister of the gospel is to make Christ famous. To put him in the highest place. And no, nobody knows what Zenos the lawyer did for Paul. Except that he was a faithful minister of the gospel. And that was enough. Zenos didn't need to be remembered. Because it was not him who he was trying to make famous. It was Jesus. And I think this is one of the reasons Paul was able to have a, a faithful ministry for so long, even in the face of incredible persecution. You realize Paul was beaten and stoned and imprisoned just over and over again. And I often wonder, how did he make it? And I think that he, he simply remembered that the work wasn't about him. The plan, the, the goals, the, everything that he did was for Christ. Paul didn't need to know why God did what he did, why he put him in prison, why he was beaten and shipwrecked. His job was simply to be faithful to his calling. And he reminds the Corinthian church of this truth when he writes in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, and 7. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. But only God who gives the growth. Church, that is a picture of Paul's understanding of who he was in this whole kingdom scheme. Nothing. He wasn't important. Apollos wasn't important. Only Christ mattered. And Paul had been close to execution so many times, but was never deterred in what God called him to do. And I think that's because he knew that the plan, the work, and the result all belonged to God. That his job was simply to be faithful. Now Paul has already told us about the lack of good work and the struggles that are happening by the Christians on the island of Crete. And we know that they were more concerned about being like the world around them than in doing what was right, in, in living a holy life. Their passion was to fit in with the culture. And Paul has been reminding them again and again, you have been called to live differently than the culture. To be set apart, holy, for the works of the Lord. And Paul knew that in order for them to become fruitful, in order for them to become holy, they needed right doctrine. They needed right beliefs first. Because that right doctrine would shape and mold them into the image of Christ so that they could be faithful ministers of that gospel and do good works, providing care whenever it was necessary. Especially after Titus leaves, right? He, he's not there much longer. This is why Titus is told in verse 14, 
Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Martin Luther once wrote this. He said, God does not need your good works. You didn't know that, but he he doesn't. God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. We shouldn't overcomplicate our support, nor should we minimize its importance. You see, your neighbor, you might be the only person that God sends to, to serve and love them, to point them to Jesus. And there are lots of people who are need our assistance, not just physically, not, with phys- not just with physical needs, but maybe spiritual or emotional needs as well. Especially when they're in a situation that's dire or urgent. And Paul is telling Titus, it's the responsibility of the entire church body to live and do good works in such a way that those people are affected for good. The fruitfulness or health of a Christian walk is seen clearly in the way we love and serve others. And notice Paul is telling Titus that people must learn this behavior. It's not natural, right? Naturally, we are selfish. We're really good at being selfish. I can attest. And Paul is saying, look, teach them. Have them practice. You have to learn to do good works. And to think about others before yourself. Because we aren't naturally good at caring for one another. And Paul is telling Titus, this is a discipline that the church must put on. We must devote ourselves to good works so that we won't live an unfruitful Christian life. So now, first, verse 15, Paul has finished his instructions to Titus. This, the letter's wrapping up. But I don't want to skip over the, the, the closing statement because there's some good little nuggets here. He closes his letter to his beloved co-laborer with these words. He says, all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. And Paul concludes the letter the same way he began it. By blessing Titus with the pronouncement that God's grace would be with him. And church, this is something we need to be reminded of often. God's grace is with you through ups and downs, through thick and thin, through the good times and the bads, God's grace is with you. It's Paul's final prayer for Titus as he sets about him on the task of organizing this church in Crete and confronting these false teachers in the congregation. And grace is a significant theme in most of Paul's letters because it's always God's grace that points us to right doctrine It's God's grace that leads us to a life of good works. It's God's grace, his profound and unmerited favor that calls us to respond in faith and never waver in proclaiming the gift of salvation he's given us to this lost and dying world. God's grace is what makes us faithful citizens of the kingdom of God. People who love and serve our neighbors as we love ourselves. God's grace transforms us into people who are peacemakers, people who are courteous and loving to those around us. 
and who respond to the needs of others so that we might help meet them in the name of Jesus Christ. Showing the world that he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. You and I can do nothing to earn our salvation. But by God's grace, we can offer up a life of service in gratitude to our God for his great redemption. By God's grace, you and I have the privilege of offering up a life of service in gratitude for the redemption that we've been given in Christ Jesus. And empowered by his grace, Paul is reminding us that every believer must go forth and bear fruit that will last forever and give him glory. As we conclude the book of Titus, it is worth considering what we've learned. First, churches and believers should always be working at becoming more healthy. None of us have arrived, right? This is a journey of faith, and sometimes it's a slow one, and sometimes a painful one. But we should always be working at becoming more like Jesus day by day. The church at Crete had a long way to go. But it was Titus's job and the job of the elders and the members of the church to grow in Christ's likeness by devoting themselves to what is good. The second thing we learned was that the word, that sound doctrine, must always be taught because that is what leads to practical life change. And I can't instilled in in you this enough. You hear the word of God, but it is up to you to put it into practice. It is up to you to leave this place and say, I'm going to live differently because of what God showed me in his word. It's your responsibility. I can't hold your hand as we go. I can, but that would be awkward when we, you know, get to the car. Practical life change, holy living comes through hearing of the word of God and saying, all right, Lord, make me more like you. Transform me by your Holy Spirit and show me who you are. And then the last thing that we learned is that the gospel, the grace of God, gives us power to live lives that please him and do good works for his glory. And my hope and prayer, church, for this series is that each one of us has been challenged to seek not our own truth, but God's truth. And we would be willing to look at what we believe and the things that we hold dear and put in the highest place and say, Lord, strip away anything that is not of you. Show me who you are. And in doing that, knowing that clinging to what is right and what is good leads us to live a life that's different from this world around us. Where good works become a joy for us because they flow out of who he is in us. And that right living transforms us into the image of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together, church.